Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review. Uh, and we're recording this podcast at the start of November in preparation for our Australian conference in Sydney at the end of November. Um, and I've got two gentlemen that are going to join us at the Australian conference, uh, Eric Chu and Glyn Thomas. Uh, so if I could come to you first, Eric. Sure. Thank you, Martin. Um, my name is Eric Chu. Uh, I'm a director um, working for HW Fisher, um, managing its software asset management practice um, called Fisher IT Asset Consulting. Um, so my practice is specialized in um, software asset management advices and as well as audit and audit defenses. Um, so I think what, what is, will be interesting for the audience uh, for this particular topic today is that um, I used to be an IBM auditor working in one of its uh, largest audit partners um, for many years. And um, in, in my previous career, I had uh, conducted over 300 ID, IBM enterprise audits. So I'm, 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 I'm quite familiar with IBM's uh, audit practices. Um, and, and also, um, we are actively in the market of defending um, IBM audits today. So um, basically seeing um, the practices on both sides, it's, it's been a quite an interesting journey and we would like to share that with the audience today. And you're very kindly supporting us at our conference in Australia, so thank you for that. And Glyn, welcome to the podcast. Uh, again, do you want to introduce yourself to the, to the listeners? Yeah, thanks Martin. Uh, hello to everybody. Uh, my name's uh, Glyn Thomas. I work for a company called Software Sense based in Sydney, Australia. We are a small consultancy company offering support around some, some practices and then licensing negotiations and commercial structures. We also do a lot of work around helping uh, clients with compliance uh, settlements and, and, and claims. Uh, I'm, I am a lawyer having uh, uh, practiced both in Europe and uh, in, the, in Australia. And prior to, up until 10 months ago, I was uh, regional counsel for the IBM software group in Asia Pacific. So I was involved in putting together probably most of the major enterprise uh, arrangements around the region and also helping settle and sort out compliance claims and, and settlements as they arose across the region. So I uh, come with a lot of first-hand knowledge uh, and it's great to be on the other side and helping clients uh, work through the maze of IBM and generally software licensing and the challenges of that phrase. So look forward to talking to you today. So you've both come from the dark side, haven't you? And you've, you've come over, you've joined the light, joined the light. and now you're, you're serving your penance for your previous sins. Is, is that what you're telling me? Yeah, hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's... it's uh, it's now time to undo all the things you did previously in previous lives. And just before we start, Glenn, as well, can you just explain your accent? Because you've been in Sydney for a little while now, haven't you? Yeah, I've been in Sydney nearly 20 years. So uh, I, I, I have a bit of an Australian accent, but most people say, no, you haven't. So 
Uh, I'm originally from from the UK, obviously born and brought up there. Uh, I've worked in various other places around the world, uh, including India, uh, Hong Kong, uh, and uh, it's, Australia is a great place to be. And uh, there's a lot of interesting work here and a lot of interesting clients. So uh, I think I've uh, now officially been recognised as a as a as an Australian, so I can I can get away with it. So I can support whichever team I want in the, when the rugby's on. Cool. Well, um, thank you both for joining us. So I wanted to cover, to pick your brains uh, around IBM uh, and tap into your previous experience. And um, for those that are attending the Australian conference, Glyn and Eric will both be there so you can go and pick their brains. So thank you both for, for supporting us on our uh, Sydney conference. Um, so I was, at a, I was actually at a client site yesterday and at an end user in the UK and they were trying to, they're actually going through a SAM tool selection process and they were looking for a, a tool to manage IBM. And they were talking about the thousands, we were discussing the thousands of different license metrics that IBM offers and different data points you need to collect. Um, IBM is seen as very complex. Do, do you want to both give me your view on the, on the complexity and, um, and, and the, the experiences of your customers around this? Yeah, look at looking looking at this. I can understand why why people get confused, and I think part of it is IBM's probably not really that good at explaining how it all works and how it all is all put together. So, let me give you a little bit of a what I understand believe is a, a summary of really how the structures work and, and what it all means means for clients to help them through the maze. But fundamentally, IBM makes available through the software group. Three categories of, of, of offerings is typically the, the mainframe soft software, which is really software that works on their Z machines and their big mainframes. Uh, the distributed uh, software, which started out in probably about 1995 when IBM bought Lotus and since then has been on a huge acquisition trail. So you'll find probably the majority of IBM software that's made available is is distributed software. And then they have obviously the, the SaaS components uh, and uh, they're selling those uh, uh, and there's a real push to, to, to sell that. Now looking at the, the structures underneath that, uh, there's sort of different different terms relating to, to each of those. So you take uh, mainframe software if you like. Uh, a lot of you will probably uh, uh, know that uh, the MLC or uh, monthly license charge software, which is a software really that drives that drives the machines, that is that is licensed under its own set of terms, and typically has, that, that's come under what what was used to be known as the IBM customer agreement, but that's now being replaced by the customer relationship agreement. So that has its own set of licensing terms, but really that only covers the MLC software. Uh, Mainframe stack also includes what they call some one-time charge software that that can only work on the on the Z machines, and that that itself is licensed under what they call the IBM Program License Agreement. So the IBM Program License Agreement is fundamentally the agreement under which all one-time charge software is licensed by IBM. So that's probably the first point you need to need to know. Anything other than any software, on-premise software that's licensed on a one-time charge basis, 
is, is licensed under the IPLA. So sitting on top of the uh, IPLA, you've got what they call Passport Advantage. And think of Passport Advantage's agreement as really a sort of frequent flyer program. So it's really there to, to identify all the commercial terms, the discount structures. It, it has the terms relating to the support that's, that, that's provided. And it basically sets a commercial framework, the scope of the enterprise, where and how, where it can be used. So there's certain terms within Passport Advantage that will override those licensing terms in the IPLA, but that's only a very few. And it's typically around the things, the scope of the enterprise and the transferability capabilities. But the IPLA sits under the Passport Advantage. Now, Passport Advantage is also the contractual mechanism they use to sell the SaaS offerings. So within Passport Advantage, there's sections there that relate to you buying SaaS offerings. And those are then supplemented by what they call uh, service descriptions. So each SaaS offering will have its own service description. So as you can see, it's just a series of layers, and I can understand why people get complicated about this. Now, on top of that, IBM's got thousands and thousands of software pro products. So trying to license those under one license agreement, like the IPLA, proved to be difficult. So what they did, they've created what they call license information documents. And those are documents that are specific to each of the products. So every on-premise, one-time charge software product will have its own license information document. And that will set out the special terms that apply to that particular product. It also typically sets out the metrics that will apply to that, to that product. So let's say you are buying some distributed software most likely, it'll be Passport Advantage product. So you'd have the Passport Advantage uh, agreement as the commercial supply contract. You would have the uh, IPLA as the uh, license terms. And then you have the license information documents, which are supplemental license terms that sits on top of the IPLA. And the reason is they couldn't put everything into one document because if you tried to cover all the special terms, in the IPLA, it'll just be a huge, huge document. So try and think of it in that sort of sort of structure. Now, a lot of you may have heard IBM say, well, we've got Passport Advantage and then we've got what we call FCT. FCT is what they call flexible contract terms. And typically, this is for a subset of product programs that typically are programs that relate to acquisitions that IBM has, has made. So when IBM has, buys a company, as it does fairly regularly, what it does, it seeks to sell those and license those products straight away. But it also, behind the scenes, go through a process of what they call blue washing, which is they go through all the software, they take out all the open source stuff and, and various things that they don't like and get into a position whereby that product is in a form that, that complies with IBM's development processes, can be supported under Passport Advantage, and then they, they turn that product into a, what they call into a Passport Advantage pro product. 
So typically, your SCT programs are likely to be for old legacy sort of stuff. So on top of that, you've got that, the legacy contract. So people need to be aware that IBM makes so many acquisitions that, that when you're looking at what contract terms to apply, you should look to see, well, what of those acquisition products do you have? And if you have those products, have you transitioned those contract terms across to IBM standard terms? Or are you still running legacy contract terms? Because there are still a number of, of, of customers who didn't want to give up their legacy terms. So that's definitely worth uh, looking into. Now that's the basic structure of the licensing. Now on top of that then is that for the larger clients, and, and really this is where probably IBM, most of IBM's software revenue comes from, uh, it comes through enterprise agreements with the larger sort of companies. And it's typically for, for companies that are growing their IBM estate, and they're usually multi-year contracts and often they're supported by a finance arrangement that's usually uh, written underwritten by IBM Global Finance. But all an ELA really is, is a commercial structure that sits on top of those existing IPLA, passport advantage documents, etc. It's, uh, it's not intended to fundamentally revamp the, the terms in there, although quite often for the big deals, customers have the opportunity to be able to renegotiate some of those terms and get some special terms in there. But also because uh, they're big contracts typically uh, for, and for clients that IBM considers as, as, as important clients, then IBM has a special some special terms that it can make available to, to, to those clients. So those are typically things like terms around substitution, cross-brand allotments, catalog, sort of stuff, which is the nice, nice sort of things for customers to give them more flexibility. Uh, but it's all based on the commitment that they sort of make. So really not, not, not an easy not an easy structure, particularly when there's a myriad, whole myriad of metrics around that. But, but it is, if you understand, can get to grips with that, it helps you in your discussions, in your negotiations. And if you're trying to evaluate what agreements do I have, where are they, how does it all fit together, and what terms do I really need to focus on? So can I can I so, just pull, can I just pull you up on the, um, the what you mentioned about education and, and IBM informing their customers? Because um, yeah. there's there's an argument that says that uh, a lot of this work around education is actually held within the audit firms, and that it's not in their interest to advance IBM education and share yeah. the knowledge because they make money from looking after that basically that that domain. So what have for coming from a previous IBM role, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Where, and and the, the other thing that we heard with the campaign for licensing when we'd done research into this a couple of years ago is that um, it's, a, it's a classic um, case of IBM not talking to each other internally and communication internally being, being quite um, broken as it is with Microsoft and SAP and other big vendors as well. So any views on that? Yeah, I think I think... Like any big company, uh, uh, and 
And any salesman who's looking to make his sale, he wants to make things as easy as possible. So he's not going to be wanting to, in effect, to put a lot of these contract stuff out there. He wants sort of to try and skim over that and just saying these are standard agreements. Don't worry, they apply to you, but they're okay. Now, uh, so where I where I think there's a, a, a huge gap is is where clients buy through business partners because they are probably the worst at trying to explain how this all comes together and i think clients buy a little bit blind without really understanding the basis under which they're they're buying and how and how that works and the relationship between the business partner and the uh and and the, and ibm but auditors I, I i don't get the feeling that auditors Typically, and Eric might, might uh, have a little different view on this, I don't get the feeling that auditors, particularly are the people someone would go to to ask about the licensing and how the licensing works. And probably they, that's not a question that should be asked of, of an auditor because once they realize you don't know what the terms are, they're going to question everything else about how you've deployed the software and how you're using it. Um, I think, Martin, I think there are probably my views, there are two sides of the knowledge. Uh, one is, you know, absolutely, as, as, as Glenn had mentioned, the knowledge of, you know, how this licensing structure and commercial works. And obviously, because IBM is the owner of intellectual property and ultimately the contract, um, um, you know, um, an IBM salesperson or, or legal person is probably the best um, um, kind of people to speak to. There's another side of this. Uh, which is basically, you know, um, how do you actually make sure that you're complying with the terms and the technicality of, you know, how do you measure your systems or measure your configurations and your usages to make sure what you are doing as a customer is actually consistent with what you agree with IBM contractually. So that technical knowledge, um, as IBM has always outsources audit activities, that technical knowledge is usually just maintained within the two audit partners IBM has. So if we could move on, so to, could move on to the topic of sub-capacity, because mm -hmm. this is, this is um, quite a common topic when people look at IBM licensing. And it'd be interesting, first of all, could, could you give me a view of your, the scope of sub-capacity? What, what, in all the IBM software that you could possibly buy, or, or maybe the, the, where the most revenue is, how much does sub-capacity actually account for? You mentioned large customers having enterprise agreements, Glenn. How, how much of that is likely to be within sub-capacity? So I, I would I would reckon it's probably be about uh, 60, 60% or so, at least, yeah. Just from a, um, I, I obviously cannot comment from a sales point of view, but one thing I can say from an audit settlement point of view, subcapacity relating findings, if you look at the overall financial um, settlements, always accounts for at least 75% of an overall settlement um, nowadays. nowadays. So... So what what is it, Glyn? If, if we could go to back to basics, what is subcapacity? And uh, we also have the acronym of ILMT. Perhaps could you, could you explain okay. those concepts and, and what that's all about? Well, let me give you my my, my view, and it's a little bit of a little bit of history there. But uh, my view of how it how it all works is that you know basically IBM requires that. Uh, you need a license everywhere where IBM software 
is installed, runs, or, or potentially could run. So broad brush, that's, that's the requirements you have under your license agreement. In the good old days, it used to be uh, a lot easier. You know, software ran on a server, and the server typically had one on CPU. And so, you know, uh, programs were licensed on 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 a on a server on a or on a CPU basis, and it was easy to sort of sort of measure. But like anything, and particularly anything on a technology nature, technology moves on at, at huge space, paces. And over the last 10, 15 years, we, we really have, have seen that. And really, you know, with bigger machines, faster processors, the machines having multiple processor calls now, uh, with the demands of, 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 of clients where they're clustering software, where they're looking to to partition software uh, uh, and then partition the hardware, you know, IBM realised that. Hang on, we can't. So we need to change. We need to change our metrics. We need to change our metrics to a way that that recognises the extra value that clients are getting from running the software on these bigger, more powerful machines with larger larger processing power. So they came up with uh, what they call as a, a metrics called typically called the PVU, Processor Value Unit, and that seeks to attach a, a rating uh, for the software to the hardware based on what hardware it is, uh, what processors it's running, etc. So IBM has a generally available public website that you can go on. You can look up any piece of hardware running any particular type of processes, and it will give you a PVU value unit for, for those processor, processor cores. So that's the mechanism it uses. And, and to be honest, it's not really any different than, than, than what a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, vendors did around that set time, because they wanted to increase the value to their clients, uh, increase the cost or the charges based on the extra value they're receiving. Okay, so you know, particularly with the area around uh, uh, the partitioning, uh, that that's 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 where really the focus on on subcapacity arises. So, IBM then put terms within its its agreements that, and it's slightly different from other vendors in that what they were saying was 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 this. They were saying, look, uh, we uh, we we accept that partitioning and sub and uh, running uh, your software in a subcapacity environment is an acceptable way forward, but if you decide to do that, you need to adhere to a certain set of terms and conditions. Now, if you don't do that, then we will treat as you as if you were running that software across the whole machine, and so you'd need to 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 buy the PVUs necessary for all those. All the all the processes of processes on that on that machine. So, you know, that's something that catches catches a lot of people out, and that's something clients really need to be aware of, because if you don't comply with those requirements, then fundamentally you're going to IBM and the auditors going to come across and say, sorry, you haven't complied with the terms. Uh, we're going to treat you as full capacity. The main terms are really, it's a requirement to install ILMT or IBM License Management Tool uh, or one of the other 
uh, approved tools and, and typically the only ones that I, I'm aware of now are the other IBM product, which is Big Fix, or also their Flexera have their FlexNet product, which is suitable for subcapacity uh, uh, reporting, but that needs IBM's special approval. So there's a, a special process you've got to go through in order to, to, to use that and agree that with IBM. And, and the issue, I think, what I find that from a contractual legal point of view, the, the challenge is, is that IBM is saying to, to its clients, and, and the clients are saying, well, you're charging me, if you charge me at full capacity, you're char probably charging me for a benefit that I've not received. And that always creates some, some interesting legal discussions anyway around the table. So just to, to recap there, so you're saying a large tasty powerful server is sliced up and virtualized let's say into four components and you're allowed to use ibm on that sub component as long as you measure it use using their ilnt tool and that's basically to say um we, we won't charge you for the full capacity of this massive server we'll only charge you for a quarter of it as long as you measure it using our tools um yeah and just on the flex error point i mean i think that is the, the Flexera thing is, is marketing smoke and mirrors because um, you could get the blessing of any tool as long as you got it in writing from IBM, then it doesn't matter. So I don't, I don't see that as a, as a as a benefit of using Flexera. It could be any tool that you could get a blessing from, from, from IBM contractually to use that technology. Um, but, but Eric, in practice, how, how useful, how good is this ILMT and are there any challenges around this? I, I think that this is the interesting way that you summarized it, um, and, and I would say it's pretty accurate, or it was, we could be pretty accurate, um, I think up to about five to six years ago, and, and this was, this is actually a problem today, so um, I think a lot of customers, um, especially in, in some of uh, the developed markets um, in, in Europe, in North America, um, they have been audited by IBM before or heard about horror stories about IBM audits. So, so more or less they're aware of this subcapacity problem now. Um, so what, what they basically started to do is to basically put LMT, um into their environments and starting to basically trying to track their IBM software. But under an impression that as long as I have LMT out there, I'm subcapacity eligible and I'm out of jail. Now, that, that was the case a few years back when IBM's relatively relaxed about how they enforced um, IBM subcapacity terms. So uh, what that means is as long as you have a reasonably good intention to deploy LLMT2 out there, even if it's not working properly, the reporting is not 100% there, um, during an audit exercise, they will still accept subcapacity. Now, this has now changed massively and IBM is, is going down to really the letter of how they want to enforce the subcapacity eligibility criteria. Um, so there, for, for a customer, um, it is actually quite difficult um, to make sure they're compliant completely with IBM subcapacity terms, starting with RLMT, okay? So um, the obvious one is obviously you can have RLMT deployed on just a subset of your IBM software or PPU software deployments. Mm -hmm. So obviously if you forgot to cover a number of servers um, under um, RLMT, those servers won't be eligible for subcapacity. Um, so that, that's an obvious one. But there are a lot of hidden um, gotchas that goes far beyond the obvious part. Uh, one, one of the most common ones that catches people out um, in the past two years 
is what IBM called the eligible virtualization technology. So to put in a simple example, if you're running IBM PVU software on a Windows, 2000, Windows Server 2003, which is quite old, but hey, believe it or not, it's still quite popular in large corporate data centers, you're not eligible for subcapacity no matter what you do. Even you have RLMT config, configured, perfectly running reporting, as long as the running operating systems Windows 2003, it's been removed from the eligible virtualization technology list, um, IBM will claim full capacity um, on those instances. So that's that's one of the, the hidden gotchas that IBM is starting to enforce um, in our experience over the past um, you know, 18 to 24 months. Um, there were other things like, um, you know, for, for some reason, if you some of the RLMT agents are not scanning or um, some of the, the, the connections to the CPU VM managers are not working because, for example, the credentials expired, um, resulting in an inaccurate report for a certain period of time, then IBM will also now try to claim uh, for full capacity, i.e., um, I think Glenn mentioned something um, around the two-year um, reports um, make, um, um, uh, reporting um, period to say that basically in, in, in IBM order you need to show um, up to, uh, well, not up to, but at least two years worth of RLMT reports. Now, during those two years period, if you have a reporting error uh, for some time, uh, in the past, IBM would say that's fine. They would, they would basically take a more relaxed view and then basically look at the reports, uh, the period that's actually reporting and establish license requirement from there. Uh, but now IBM is saying that as long as you had a mistake somewhere during a period that they can't track or report the capacity properly, they will license all those impacted servers on the full capacity. So can we just drill into why they might be getting lighter on their terms? So I think uh, uh, news recently that they missed their 22nd or 25th quarter in a row in terms of Sorry, not missed. They, they just the the, the revenue has been descending for twenty five quarters or something like that. Um, so, so you could argue that they're they're dying or they're transforming their business and they're changing their revenue, changing things around. What's your what's your view on that? For, for maybe if we could come to you first, Glenn. What what do you think of IBM? Are they transforming themselves or are they dying? Well, they they, they are transforming, but the, but clearly the and it's evident that the software revenue the on-premise stuff is is is, is de declining so they're trying to move to cloud they're trying to move to artificial intelligence with watson and they're trying to do a lot of stuff around the, the bitcoin but i think i think uh i my my, my experience and, and knowing how the things work within ibm is that even even if there's the, the two-year reporting problem is 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 tough really and 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 my view is when there's a subcapacity finding then they'll put it in as full capacity but they'll always then seek to come to a resolution around trying to establish well what have you what else have you got that can help us determine what is a an eligible license decision of really what you're actually using so uh yeah, there'll be some areas, I'm sure, and some people who will drive it really, really hard. But uh, I, I, there's a lot of reticence within other, other parts of IBM around subcapacity claims because it messes up relationships <laughs> big time. And funder, for me, the fundamental issue is that you're potentially being charged for something that you may not receive the benefit for. Nobody is happy about doing that. 
So I think I think there is uh, a a people are prepared to work with clients. Uh, they won't let them off the hook, but they'll seek to get get a resolution. But they're not, in my view, and what I've typically seen, they won't drive them really hard to say you pay full. It, let's say that ten audit findings come back. How many of those will actually be disputed, and how many are? will just be paid do you think i i i think uh i think uh probably about it all depends on 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 the clients and and whether the clients seek to get external advice and help or whether they try and do it all themselves uh, it depends on whether people think they can they can hide it from <laughs> their senior management the fact that there's a thing or whether they can work it in the classic way is that you settle a compliance by working it into a, a new commercial deal and it sort of then gets gets lost. So, you know, that seems to be the best approach. But also I think, you know, quite often these, these audits can be quite combative and I think clients get put on the back foot and they get pressurized to provide information, to provide reports, and it can get quite quite aggressive. So it's really important uh, to to be able to manage the process and agree up front as to how what's going to be measured, how it's going to be measured, and uh, and 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 be be on the front foot. And that's what's great about a lot of the work that the SAM people do is that it helps people be prepared that. When there are these questions, they can go back and refute them, and, and they can tell the auditors, or they can have it noted on the on the on the audit report that there's, a, there's they don't agree with what's there, and this is the reason why they don't do that. And this agree. is this is the evidence to support their claims, uh, counterclaims. Yeah. And Eric, any any views on that? Ten ten audit findings. How many would be rejected? I think my my um, uh, my my answer to that it will probably be biased because we work in this market. So um, every client that invited us in to help them will obviously be disputing their yeah. um, their, their their findings. So 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 in our cases, hundred um, percent. I think I, I do agree with Glenn in our experience as well. Um, IBM would very rarely force the client to settle on full capacity, but what they are now doing is they are basically pushing the auditors to. To, to enforce every possible restrictions in the subcapacity criteria. So the audit report will show a huge number. So um, we have seen very often now, um, you know, numbers exceeding 100 million, you know, whether it's euros and dollars or pounds, because of these subcapacity issues with large customers. These are, you know, just, just hypothetic numbers. And uh, obviously, IBM will not force the clients to pay that amount. But having that as an entrance point of, of a negotiation will really give IBM an upper hand to say that let's say if if you, on paper on full capacity your 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 ex, or your, your liability um, contractually is 100 million, if we ask you to pay 10 million, you're already getting a huge deal. Um, however, if the client is is fully compliant with subcapacity, there will be no potentially no no compliance findings at all. So that that is basically a tactic um, that IBM is is, is is enforcing a lot more now, um, to use the subcapacity as a driver to push through um, all the negotiations, trying to extract a, a higher settlement value from from every audit. 
And in, just to finish, uh, gentlemen, um, if there is a dispute and the SAM people find evidence that the audit findings are wrong, what's what's your advice in terms of positioning that and replying to audit findings and and so on? How how do you actually do, how do you manage that process? Um. So I, I think I think Glenn kind of mentioned it um, a little bit to, um, just now to say that um, you know if you don't agree with the audit findings, you can um, present your evidence and ask the auditors um, to note in the audit reports, um, so that you can basically then have your uh, your your commercial negotiation or dispute um, resolution with IBM directly. Yeah. Now um, I have one thing to add to that is um, in every audit, the auditor. Uh, that we, we well personally I've experienced on both sides the the audit firm will not have will never have full access to a client's IT environment or a full full understanding of how exactly I um, the client use IBM software um, and 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 also the data they collected is always limited to a degree and they will never get 100% of the data they ask for now as a result of that um, more um, bigger or less um, Part of the, the audit reports will always contain assumptions um, um, that auditors make. And, and because of this accountancy's prudence um, nature, they would tend to make that assumptions um, in a worst case scenario that maximize the potential license usage. Now it is it is important even before the client agrees to, you know, um, to pass on the, the auditors to, to pass on the report to IBM. They fully review the auditor's findings and differentiate, you know, what are the facts and what are the assumptions. And, and challenge any assumptions that may not be factually accurate um, to the auditor um, before they release the, the, the report to, to IBM. And, and just want to be very clear on one thing as well. Um, the audit firms will always ask um, the client to, to confirm factual accuracy agreement, i.e. the client agree on the factual accuracy of their findings before they send the report out to IBM, because that helps IBM um, in terms of settling um, the nego um, commercial negotiation but it doesn't really help the client in most cases. So our advice to our client is, um, as long as you're not 100% happy with the report, you don't need to confirm anything uh, on the factory accuracy side, and you should direct your negotiations um, to IBM. There's a lot of things that, the, the auditors there are the, are the subject matter experts. IBM aren't on these things. So they're, but they're there just to collect the facts. They're not there to make judgments. So I think you can be fairly open in saying if there's something you don't don't agree with, then you take that as note that on the on the report or disagree with it or whatever. Likewise, uh, they'll only have copies of certain contracts and, and entitlements that come from IBM. And a lot of these big arrangements, often there's been representations made by salespeople, by business partners. That really are things that need to could should be taken into account, and really, if they were taken into account, there wouldn't be a, an adverse an adverse finding. So I think uh, you need to be really uh, on your toes in terms of making sure you keep copies of all that correspondence, even even pre-contract correspondence, because that's the stuff that that, that will help you if you get a if you get a, a, a license sort of exposure. So I I, I think you know just be be clear on what you're going to give to the auditor. Uh, make sure you vet it first. Don't give them stuff that you're not comfortable with that's been vetted or understand what the implications of what you give them and, and, and how it can and may be used. 
Perfect. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I look forward to seeing you both in Sydney, Australia, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, see you next time.